Thank you all so much, and um, we are blessed every week to have a crew up here leading us, and it was uh, good to have a couple of new faces up here, Jed and Hunter, and we appreciate everybody that, that leads us in worship. Man, I've, that God is so good. I, man, that's one of like the first songs I learned at, at church camp growing up, so I, I know that one. That's a little spin on it, but I like it. Uh, well, I want to say welcome to everybody, especially if you're here maybe as a guest today for the first time. We certainly want to welcome you, and uh, so grateful that more people are coming in. And I know we got some good news from the CDC this week, didn't we? All right, so we got those masks. Yeah, thank you. We can clap for that. My gosh, goodness. All right. So, and we are having an elders meeting this afternoon, and we're going to start making some moving forward. I know there's still some people that are just coming back and a little skittish, but we're going to keep moving forward, hopefully get more chairs in here and, and uh, get rid of the mask and all that. So, yeah, y'all be patient with us, but we're working towards all that. Um, I want to be sensitive, but yet we want to keep going, going forward. So, uh, very, very grateful uh, for that, and things are definitely getting better, so... Um, all right, how many, uh, I know a lot of people, maybe, I don't know how many of you younger people will know uh, Aesop's Fables. Anybody know what I'm talking about, Aesop's Fables? Okay, some of I see a few hands, all right. So one of my favorites is this. So there's an older man, and he is uh, with his younger son, and they are going to the market to sell their donkey, and they're leading it by a rope to the, to the market. And as they're going... Some people see them and they're going, what's wrong with those people? They got a good donkey and they're both leading him by road. Why aren't they riding it? So they overhear this, so they both get on the donkey. All right. So they get on the donkey and they start riding it. Another group of people walks by and goes, can you believe this, people? Both of them on top of that donkey. They're going to break that donkey's back and he's going to be no good to sell. So they overhear that and they, uh, the older man gets off. So it's just the son riding it now. Okay. So they walk, go by another group of people and they see... Um, uh, the old man uh, is, is leading the boy, and they're going, can you believe that boy's making his old dad um, walk while he's riding on the donkey? So they switch positions, and now the old man's riding. And then sure enough, here comes somebody, and they say, can you believe that little, uh, can you believe that old man's making that little boy walk that donkey while he's riding? And so they just go, man, what do we do? So they just finally decide, you know what, we're just going to get a pole, and we're going to carry the donkey to the marketplace. So that's what they do. They go across a bridge, and they stumble, and he falls off and drowns in the river below. That's the story. I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't write the story. I'm just telling you, okay? You're like, well, that's really encouraging as we get going this morning. But that's an Aesop's fable. Basically, the, the moral was, uh, of that story is basically you can't please everybody, right? And when you try to do it, what happens to your original plan, your original vision or dream? If you try to please everybody, you're never going to see that dream or that vision or that plan uh, come to fruition, are you, when you listen to everybody? And I understand that. Probably y'all do too. And so the question this morning is how do we respond to criticism? Especially when we're doing something we really feel that God has called us to do. And we feel like we've got a God-ordained plan. We've got something we really feel is from God and we're on the right track. But then all of a sudden somebody starts criticizing us. Somebody starts saying it. So what do you do? Do you start changing your actions to try to make everybody happy? I'm a people pleaser. I try to do that. Some of y'all are people pleasers. We try to do that. But what I've found over the years is there's still somebody that's mad. There's still somebody that's not happy. And guess what? I didn't stay with my original plan. I didn't stay with my original vision. Another thing we do when we uh, encounter criticism is this. We get defensive. Anybody get defensive? I do. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you get defensive. Because when someone 
um, criticizes you, especially when it's your plan or your idea or your vision or whatever it is, it, it hurts our pride. It gets something going inside us emotionally. We feel our, our blood pressure going up. We feel like, what, what's wrong with my plan? What are you, what are you saying? And uh, especially when criticism involves, again, an idea of ours that's personal, our, our thing, our vision, our dream. And, and how we handle that criticism has a lot to do with how our vision or dream will progress or maybe stall or maybe, or maybe even die sometimes because we listen to criticism and how we handle that. It might stall it a little bit and then we stay on track or sometimes we might just go, you know what, this just isn't going to work. I'm not making anybody happy, and then we just, it just dies. And sometimes we get so rattled or consumed by the criticism of other people or, or other groups that we waste time and energy trying to convince them that we're right and that our plan is the right one or that it will work. And instead, we should stay true to what God has called us to do. And so uh, a lot of times with a vision, we find out where somebody's really on board with us and trying to help us or whether somebody's really not on board and not trying to help us. And so when you cast a vision or a plan, you can be very clear in what it is. You'll say, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. Here's my vision. And y'all go, yeah, I understand. I see what you want to do. I see clearly what that is. But where it gets a little tricky sometimes is how. Well, I get what you're going to do or what you want to do. I see what your vision is, Craig, but how are you going to do that? I want to know how you're going to do that. How are you going to get that vision accomplished, that plan accomplished? And you have to ask those questions. How will you accomplish this vision? And as you try to lay it out, there's even more how questions. Well, how are you going to do that? And that kind of gets a little tricky. And some people who believe in you, some people who believe in your vision, believe in your dream and want you to succeed, they're asking you how questions because they really want to help you. They really want to help you see that vision through. But there's also people who will ask questions about how over and over again, and they don't really want answers. They don't want you to succeed. They don't want that vision to come through. They don't want your dream to be accomplished. They're just trying to discourage you, and you have to understand that. Well, in our text today, we're going to look at Nehemiah along with the rest of the folks that were part of this uh, project of rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem, and they have encountered at this point, they're going along really good. Things are looking up. Things are being accomplished in Jerusalem. Remember, it was in rubble. A lot of torn down walls, and all of a sudden they're starting to put these things back together, and they encounter some criticism. So we're going to look at that today. It's how did Nehemiah, as a leader, and the rest of these people, how did they handle this criticism that comes in as they're accomplishing this, this vision? So I'm going to give you a little bit of background. If you haven't been here, that's okay. But we're doing a series um, called Vision Reconstruction, and we're looking at the writing of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, if you remember, was a cupbearer to the king. King Artaxerxes, who's the Persian king, who's the world power at the time. And uh, he gets to taste the food and drink the drink before Artaxerxes takes it. And so in case there's poison in it, he's the one that dies instead. Well, they become pretty close, as you can imagine. And one day he's in the presence of the king, and he says, What's wrong with you? You look sad today. And he says, Well, I've been praying and fasting for this. And even before this, he has prayed and fasted and said, God, give me favor in front of the king today. And when the king asks him what's wrong, he goes, Well, why shouldn't I be sad? The, the roots of where I come from in Jerusalem, that's where my roots, that's where my family's from. And it's been in, 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 in just a mess there in Jerusalem. The walls are broken down. And I want to go back and rebuild those walls. And the king goes, what do you need? And he lets him go and he gives him resources. And then he makes that 700 to 1,000 mile journey to Jerusalem. And 
he lays out this plan for the people. He goes, hey, the walls are broken down. We should rebuild it. And they go, we know. We live here. But he's going, no, you got to understand. God gave me this vision. He gave me favor with the king. And the king not only let me come here with all these resources, but God is about this. God wants this to happen. This is his vision, and we can carry this out. And the people all of a sudden say, we can do this, and let's do it. And as I've been saying over and over again that the, the definition of uh, a, a vision is, is it's a picture, painting a picture of the future that produces passion in people. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He painted this picture of the future, and they go, that's right, it needs to be like this. These walls need to be restored. And it was more than just a construction project. It was more than just walls being rebuilt. Again, they are to reflect who God is, His character. They are to reflect to the rest of the world. What is a relationship with God supposed to be? And so as this project is getting built, and if you were here last week, we saw that he had a strategic plan, and he says, you know what, everybody in the town has to be involved with rebuilding these walls. Not just construction workers, but priests, but anybody that's doing it, shopkeepers, whoever it is, kids, young, old, everybody has to pitch in for this. And matter of fact, we're going to let you build the wall section in front of your house. Because if it's in front of your house, guess what? You want it to look good because everybody's going to know you built that section. You want to make sure nobody comes in through that wall on your section. So he has strategically done this, and everybody starts building in front of their house. They want it to look great. The project's going great. They're putting gates back in place, bars back in place, and people are getting encouraged, and things are starting to move forward. And so ultimately, though, as they're doing this, and the attitude and the outlook of the future is positive and growing, then they encounter the people around them. And so I'm going to tell you a little background. These people around them, and I've mentioned them the last few weeks. I can't pronounce their names very well, but there's three guys in particular who are not Jewish, and they are in the surrounding region, and they know Israel's history as well as Israel does. They know the reason you've been in exile, the reason Jerusalem is broken down and torn down is because you had a covenant with your God, and you didn't keep that. And he allowed you to be taken over by another enemy, and he allowed you to go into exile, and they all know that. But now all of a sudden they see people are coming back to Jerusalem. That makes them a little nervous. They see that walls are starting to be rebuilt. They hear this guy named Nehemiah has come from the king with resources, and, and he's got the authority to do this. As a matter of fact, he's going to be the governor of that region. They're very nervous. Uh-oh, those are God's people, and they're starting to be restored. Maybe God's not mad at them anymore. We're in trouble. So this gets them not only concerned but it makes them angry because now they're going to maybe lose some of their power and they don't like that. So that's where we are today. So we're going to look, and this is going to be long. Y'all got to stay with me. Nobody's sleeping. Get a swig of your Red Bull or coffee or whatever it is. But this is a long verse, right? A long uh, chapter right here, chapter 4. But I want to read it, and we are going to go from chapter 1 to 23. It's going to be on the screen. Or you got your Bibles or your personal advice. Listen to what happened. So when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was by his side, says, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. I guess that was a cut down in those days or something like that. I don't quite understand that. But anyway, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face 
of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. There's that reaction again. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them uh, by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that they were... When they heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time... I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night and they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers or my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. I know that was longer. You're like, man, is he ever going to get through that thing? But I I thought it was necessary to read all this because I want you to see how they responded to criticism that was real that came upon them. Okay. So we've read that, and you see what was going on there. In verses 4 and 5, we see where, where Nehemiah, the first part of this, you hear these irritators in the region are not just, huh, I wonder what they're doing. No, they're angry. They're mad about what's going on. And what is Nehemiah's first response? He has this raw, um, very raw but very real prayer to God. And, and it's, it's interesting and I, I want to I read it again. And listen, this is a prayer that's very real. And you kind of go, wow, that's kind of a brutal prayer that you prayed. So he says, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Man, he doesn't want any mercy on these people. Have you ever prayed to God like that? That's a prayer that's in the Bible. So does that mean we should pray that? Well, think about in the Psalms. All of us have probably read the Psalms. If you haven't, David wrote most of those Psalms. When David was 15, probably 15 years old, David was anointed king over Israel. Do you know how long it was before he actually became king of Israel? 15 years. 
15 years. And during that 15 years, the current king, Saul, was chasing him down, trying to kill him. And so David wrote some of his psalms going, God, what, what in the world? Why are you letting this happen? And he, he, he writes these psalms. He prays. He cries out to God saying, God, why is this happening? And he talks about breaking the teeth of his enemies and all these kind of rough things. That doesn't mean that God's going to make all that happen. He's just saying, God, as I'm talking to you, I'm telling you how I feel. And y'all, that's the kind of God we serve. He's okay with hearing it. Because guess what? He knows it anyway, right? He knows what your heart's feeling. He knows what's in your mind and in your soul. And when we pour it out to him, he loves that because he's our father. He wants to know what we're feeling. So, so you know, this prayer is just raw and maybe unmerciful. But he's saying, we're trying to do something for you, God, you know, man, don't have any mercy on them. Let ha- what happened to us, that exile, let that happen to them. So that, that's where we are. So Nehemiah prays. That's the first thing he does. And we see this in this writing of Nehemiah, y'all, all the time. Before he does anything, he prays. He says, God, I need your help. Yeah, I'm, I'm high up in the official of the kings. I got all this power now. I'm a governor here. I got all these resources. I got all these people going about this vision but I still need you, God, and I recognize it. He never loses sight of that. So they pray, and then what do they do? They act. You don't just pray to God, you act. You can't just say, God, make it work. No, he's going, I'm going to be there with you, but you've got to do. I've got to see what you're going to do. So they kept going, and it tells us in verse 6 that they were halfway to their goal. And this was no small accomplishment, y'all. They've been working on this for years, hundreds of at least 100 years, I believe it is. These walls have been broken down, and no one's done anything about it. So in this short time they have already got them up to halfway. And as a result, and I don't know how their enemies were seeing all this. I don't know if they were coming by and looking. I don't know how good the binoculars were that day or telescopes or whatever they had that day. But they're probably from the region are going, they're building the walls. You do see this. There's a lot of activity going on. You see all the scaffolding going up. You see all this going on. And now we see that the walls are about halfway finished. And then they were really angry. And you hear that again, that word. Their enemies responded with anger, and now they threat, and they're threatening to come, and they're going to get in there, and they're going to fight against Jerusalem, and they're going to stir up trouble. And what does Nehemiah do again? He prays again, and then he makes an adjustment in the plan. We're not going to change the vision. We're not going to change the plan. We're going to make a slight adjustment, but we're going to stay on track to what God's called us to do. So they posted a guard day and night to meet the threat. That threat is real. And I've asked God to be with us, but we're still going to post somebody. God needs to see that we're going to do this. Vision and plan still on, just a slight adjustment. But then they hit a roadblock. And I want to go back to verse um, 10 through 12. And it says, Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Have you ever been doing something, and you're almost there, and you quit right in the middle? Have you ever done that and wish to this day you had not stopped in the middle? I have. Maybe you've even tried to encourage someone at your work or one of your kids or somebody in your family or somebody on your team. You know, you've played half the season, don't quit now. You've played half the game, don't give up now. You're halfway through the marathon, don't give up now. And this is kind of what Nehemiah is dealing with. People are tired, they hear these threats, they're scared, and they're going, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think we can do this. And Nehemiah's going, man, you've got to stay strong. They start believing the lies of their enemy because the enemies are telling them you can't get it done. They're, they're putting out all kinds of rumors and people are starting to believe us. But they're going to come in and they're going to, they're going to try to kill us. They're going to stir up the trouble. And Nehemiah goes, yeah, I know. 
We're going to do something about that. Now, I don't think we can really understand this in our cultures. Like I said, I try to put myself in that culture, but I don't think we can understand. It would be like, um, how many of y'all have been out trying to help people through since the tornadoes? Maybe cleaned up some stuff with chainsaws or whatever. A lot of y'all have done that. But could you imagine if you were going out to do that and you had to have somebody go, hey, can you get your gun and, and fight off the guys that are trying to shoot me while I'm cutting these, these limbs up? Now, we laughed at that, but that's what this would be like. They're trying to do something that's a vision that God said, I need to help these people get these trees off their houses and off their driveway, and there's enemies that are trying to come in and kill me while I'm doing it. That's what it would be like. I, I didn't encounter any of that, did y'all? It was pretty easy. you know. I just had to make sure I didn't cut my leg off with my chainsaw. And that was important not to do. So the people start believing the lies, but he's saying no. As I said earlier in this series, Nehemiah does not do anything without praying. He prays before everything. But after he prays, he acts. He doesn't do anything after it. He doesn't just sit there after he's praying and says, God's going to fix this. He goes, no, I'm going to pray before everything, but I'm going to act also after I pray to God. He makes some more adjustments, strategic adjustments, not just to run or hide of these threats and give up, but he goes, no, we're going to put people where the low sections are, and those people that are looking at us, however they've got the spies or whatever, they're going to see in every low section where they're going to try to come in and stir up the trouble or try to kill us or get in the city, we're going to have people with weapons right there waiting on them. And as they looked around, the enemies from the outside, they go, Man, they've got somebody at every little crack in the wall. Every low spot, there's somebody there with weapons. They know what we're doing. They've heard about it. And they're taking up defensive uh, measures for this. And Nehemiah's reminding them, this is more than a construction. So he says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, hey, don't be afraid of them. Remember our Lord. He is a great an awesome God. He's here for us. And he says, fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He goes, look, you've got to be a part of showing God that you're ready to fight to be restored to him. You're willing to do that and to save your family. This starts with you and your family. And again, this is a strategic thing that Nehemiah does. Is it's you out in front of your house. That wall, that matters for you and your family. What's going on? These threats, that matters to you and your family. You need to fight for these things. And the result of the prayer in action, verse 15, when our enemies heard that and were aware of their plot that God had frustrated, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. They heard. They know. And their God knows. And they were frustrated. And they just went back to their work. But they didn't just go back to their work. I don't know how many times y'all have tried to do a project with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other or a gun. <laughs> Never had to do that myself personally, but that would be a difficult thing. But that's how it is at this point. I want to go back to say something about how sometimes we pray about things, but we have no intentions of acting on it. Oh yeah, dear God, please help this so-and-so. You know, we've all done that sometimes, thrown up a prayer and say, maybe God will take care of it, but I'm not really involved in that. Uh, uh, there was a guy, Tony Campolo, probably a lot of y'all maybe heard of him. He was a professor at Eastern College and spoke a, a lot. I got to hear him at youth conventions for several years when I was a youth minister. But he told a story once where he was getting off a plane speaking somewhere. And as he was getting off the plane, his secretary called him and said, hey, don't forget, as soon as you get off the plane, you've got another speaking engagement to about 500 women at this church downtown. He goes, oh, I totally forgot about that. And he says, it's not a good deal when I'm tired and forgetful to try to talk in front of people. He says, I probably should have canceled that, but I'd already promised him. So he gets off the plane 
plain. He goes to this place, 500 women, and he speaks to them. And uh, afterwards, she says, uh, the lady that's kind of leading the thing says, Hey, Tony, would you, we're, we're trying to raise $20,000 for this uh, hospital. I think it was in Africa. And so would you have a prayer that God would provide that $20,000? And he says, I was already not in a good mood. I was tired. And he says, he goes, wait a minute, there's a lot of ladies here. I bet there's $20,000 in this whole group. I bet if y'all emptied all your purses and wallets out, we could come up with $20,000. And he said, the lady of that thing looked at him like, what are you doing? And he goes, no, I'm serious. Why should we ask God for something that we already have? So let's do that. Let's take up an offering right now. Let's see if we can't get that $20,000. So reluctantly, everybody's reaching in their purse and pulling out all the money they have. And guess how much money they raised? More than $20,000. They had it right there. And he says, how dare we ask God for something that we already have access to? So Nehemiah understood that concept. If we're going to ask God to help us, we need to position ourselves. We need to act and show him that we, we need him, but we're going to act. We're going to act in faith that he's going to get us through this and keep us on track uh, with our vision. So they continued their work. And I thought about through COVID, a lot of you have had to say, God, I don't know what's going on with this COVID thing, but we're going to act in faith and, and try to move forward. We've tried to do this in the church. Y'all remember there was eight weeks where we couldn't have church at all. And man, that was rough. That was rough. And I remember, <laughs> y'all remember those awful sermons I did where the face was like, uh, you know, it's like I was too close. I was too far away. I was on one side. It was like, what is, who, what, who's filming that? It was me. I'm an idiot. I didn't know. I hadn't done that before, you know. And so, uh, and after a while, you just go, oh, I'm just going to have to go like that. Just send it out. I, I ain't got nothing else, you know. But during that time, and then, but, but I missed. And I was sitting here, y'all, with a computer right here on this pulpit preaching to nobody. I hated it. But we started as a leadership, as, as a staff, saying, how are we going to get people back here? And we started, if you remember, um, with the drive-in church. And, and, and that was something new for us. And then we finally, as things got a little better, then we started coming back in the church and spacing the chairs and wearing masks and sanitizing and the whole six feet and all that. And, and we had to work through that. But there were people who were critical of what we were doing. Y'all are going to kill somebody. Somebody really said that to me. You know, and I was kind of hurtful, but I had to go, wait a minute. What, what is God calling us to do is to bring people to worship and send them out to serve. And we need to be in person to do that. That's what God's church is all about. So we had to do that, and it wasn't easy. And we got some criticism for that, but I'm glad we did what we did. I still think we were following what God called us to do. So then at the last part of this, you know, God said, uh, Nehemiah is saying, God's with us. And he said to the nobles and officials, verse 19, he says, uh, there's going to be a trumpet sound. And if there's trouble anywhere along the wall, and we're all spread out doing our work, but if we hear somebody trying to come in that wall on one part, we're going to sound the trumpet. And he says, um, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. We're watching. And not only are you going to defend your family and your home right where you are, but if you hear the trumpet sound, we as a community are going to defend one another. And this is all building character for them. This is not just a construction project. This is building this community to back to what it was supposed to be to reflect the nature and the character of God. He says, we're going to fight, and our God will fight for us. But he needs to see that we're going to come together, and he's going to fight with us. So this was a great encouragement. And they finally, their enemies are going, wow, they're on top of this. They know what's going on. They are ready for us. This isn't going to be as easy. They're not going to be intimidated like that. So there's several lessons for us in this today, and I just want to share a few. Uh, you're going to have people criticize you, no matter what it is you try to do. 
They're going to try to discourage you, and you have to be ready for that. And you've got to kind of go through your mind. Is this person really trying to help me, asking good how questions, or is this person just trying to discourage me because they don't have anything going on in their life? They're not going anywhere in their life, so they want to discourage me when they see I'm trying. And y'all know this is true. Sometimes when you're trying to make yourself better, there's people that are not doing anything, and they want to discourage you. Hey, don't be getting ahead. We don't want that to happen. And they try to discourage, and you've got to be ready for that. Some people are well-meaning and wrong, and some people are not well-meaning and wrong. So how will you respond? Are you going to try to please everybody and make everybody happy? Well, that's not going to work. You've got to say, God, what is the vision you've given me? So I'm going to just talk, as we close, three things that I think that we see that Nehemiah does over and over again in this building project. First thing he does is he prays to God, and he's raw and he's honest. You saw that he, before this even started, the first thing we read about in Nehemiah was that he fasted and he prayed, and he got raw and honest with God and told him, God, I know there's these roots of my family and of Israel, and I know we've been exiled, but I want to be a part of restoring, getting restored to you on who you've called us to be. And God heard that and, and did something in his life. So you pray first, and then you reflect, and you remember that God, never forget that God should be the source of your vision and your life. Because sometimes we can get arrogant and we can try to do have a vision that's really all about us. And we have to have people. We need to step back and reflect and say, is this really something for God and his kingdom? Or is this something for me and my kingdom? And we have to reflect and remember that never forget that God should be the source of our vision and our plans and our life. And then the third thing is pray, reflect. And the third thing is adjust your plan, but act. Don't just stay where you are. Stay true to the vision that God's called you to, but you have to act. God needs to see that you're moving forward, and he will be with you in that, but he needs to see that you're moving forward. And I remember this line that I like in this, this passage here is, our God will fight for us. And we have to believe that God really will fight for us. And we need to internalize this. Your God will fight for you. It needs to be personal. And then you need to turn that around and say, my God will fight for me. We have to believe that. But ultimately, as we close and get ready to go into a time of communion, our God fought for us in an amazing way when you really think of it. God fought for us. How? By sending Jesus into the world. And we thought he was going to be a king. He was going to take over. Israel thought that was going to happen. But how did Jesus ultimately fight for us? He died for us. But he needed us he, we needed him to die for our sins because we couldn't, there was nothing we could do about our sins. It separated us from God. We were going to be eternally in exile, exile from God because of our sins. But he knew what we really needed. And the fight that he made was to go to that cross and suffer for us. And he ultimately did that. But he didn't stay dead. He resurrected to give us eternal life. So our God throughout history has been with us. And we don't always understand his ways, but he's been working through history, weaving his way through to ultimately save all of his people.